It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Broadcasting from Hollywood, Florida, the Hard Rock, ahead of the Patriot Awards. Tomorrow on Fox Nation, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream live, foxnation.com. An encore presentation Sunday evening on Fox News Channel will be coming to you live from this venue today for all three hours live and again tomorrow for all three hours live. And we have quite a lineup for you each day. Today, we have two U.S. senators on the program, one of whom is coming up minutes from now. Later this hour, though, Mark Thiessen will be here. Pete Hegseth, who's emceeing the Patriot Awards tomorrow night, he will join me in studio, our makeshift studio, here at the Hard Rock. We'll be face-to-face in the next hour. Julio Rosas, my colleague at townhall.com, is live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We are on verdict watch in the Rittenhouse trial. He's been covering all of it. We'll get the latest on that front. And in our final hour, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, a Republican, she will be here. Fox News alert as we get going. Let's bring you stats on COVID as we do every day. The case count in the United States, 47.1 million. That's all in over the course of the pandemic. That's a lowball estimate with experts saying the true number is much higher. The death toll, people dying of or with COVID in the United States over the last 19 months or so, 763,178. The Dow is up 126 points at this hour, currently trading at 36,213. And we will bring you the final number at the close when we begin our next hour here on The Guy Benson Show. For now, we are thrilled to welcome back to the program U.S. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah. He joins us now. Senator Romney, thank you so much for being here. Happy to join you, Guy. So, Senator, I want to start with yesterday's bill signing. You were one of the Republicans who attended at the White House. You were one of the Republican senators who voted in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. From a Republican or a conservative perspective, you're a fiscal conservative. What are your thoughts behind some of the anger among many conservative Republican voters who are upset with Republicans who voted in favor of this. I think, oh, you're handing a victory to President Biden. In the House, they were giving Pelosi the votes that she needed when they were in a real pickle, potentially on the whip count. What would you say to those critics? Why do you feel like this bill was worthy of bipartisan support and your support in particular? Well, first of all, it was half as much spending on physical infrastructure as President Biden originally proposed. Uh, so we uh, we cut back dramatically what he wanted. Number two, it took physical infrastructure away from his other bill, which is the, uh, you know, if you will, the BBB program, which is to, to uh, dramatically increase spending on social programs. So in some respects, we took the sweetness a 
away from his overall bill and I think made it harder for him to get his BBB program through. I certainly hope so. And, of course, most importantly, uh, you know, it allows us to uh, deal with some of the infrastructure needs that we have. There are a lot of states like mine that are growing fast that need some help on highways and bridges and, and uh, Internet and so forth. So we're, we're it, it, overall, it's good for America. Yeah, you know, I, I agree that, that Democrats will get some credit for it, as Republicans will. But uh, it's, uh, in my opinion, this is good for us and bad for the Democrats. So let's focus on that analysis, because I was sort of take it or leave it on the infrastructure bill. I saw both sides of the argument. I did not come on the air and rage against Republicans who thought it was a good idea. I wasn't fully disagreeing either with those who voted no. I could understand why Republicans might be split on this. And I think it's okay to sort of see both sides. I was a bit uncomfortable seeing these 13 House Republicans hand every vote needed for Speaker Pelosi to get this through in the lower chamber. However, and I made this point the very next day, and this goes to what you just argued, Senator, what the progressives wanted all along was for the infrastructure bill to be inextricably linked to build back better, to this huge reconciliation spending scheme. And they were able to link them and couple them for weeks on end. This development has now decoupled those two pieces of legislation. And I wonder if that strategically might actually make the Democrats' job harder, ultimately to get build back better passed into law, because some of the moderates or at least relative moderates in the House, and certainly some of your colleagues in the Senate, they helped negotiate the infrastructure bill. They've gotten the win there. They might want to take that win and say, you know, maybe let's uh, pump the brakes on this other stuff, or maybe let's uh, water it down and bring down you know, the, the tax increases or bring down the spending levels. Some of that progressive uh, leverage that they had is now gone. Well, I think it's hard to precisely calculate what the political implication is of passing a particular piece of, of legislation. That, that being said, I, I agree with your analysis there, which is taking away the physical infrastructure, which, which Biden wanted as part of a total package. Taking that away and making it get voted on independently makes it harder for them to pass all the rest of the stuff, this massive tax increase uh, and the spending on on pre-k and child care and various benefits it makes it harder to pass that that doesn't mean it won't pass it just makes it harder and so i believe by separating these two we've made it harder for them to pass the build back better bill and I think we've made it uh, a, a substantial savings in in, uh, in, in spending uh, and probably a savings in terms of tax increases as well. So, you know, I, I, we, we didn't we didn't vote for it entirely because of the politics. But I can tell you, when you see Mitch McConnell vote for something, uh, it, it says that based upon his calculation, he figures the politics are working in our favor uh, and not on the other side's favor. Yeah, I think that's something that's important to underscore, because whether you love Mitch McConnell or hate Mitch McConnell, I tend to be in the former category. I'm a big fan of cocaine Mitch. When he has his antenna up and he's trying to get the lay of the land politically, his instincts are often very good. He's a savvy operator and a great tactician. He's been doing it a long time. So I think that's just something to think about if you're one of the people really up in arms over this vote. But let's shift now more specifically, Senator, to 
the reconciliation Democrat spending bill. Trillions of dollars, tons of gimmicks in there to make it seem like it might be a little bit less expensive than it really will be. We see record high, what, 31-year highs in inflation. The White House, with a straight face every day, comes out and says, spending these trillions of dollars will help inflation. The president saying no one's going to see a tax increase unless you're a rich person making over $400,000 a year. We've got nonpartisan analysts saying that's not true. There'll be tax increases on the middle class here. It just feels like, given all of the struggles and challenges facing our economy right now, I wouldn't support this package under any circumstances. It's way too much spending, way too many tax increases. But especially in this moment, it almost feels like madness. And yet they are chugging right along and determined to pass it. What are your top reasons that you were so vociferously opposed to Build Back Better? Well, first of all, we shouldn't be raising taxes on the American people. That's number one. Number two, we shouldn't be spending a ton of money on things we don't absolutely need, even as we're racking up larger and larger deficits and adding to the national debt. We simply can't afford to spend money on things that aren't absolutely essential. So this bill spends a whole lot of money on things I don't like. I wouldn't vote for any one of them that I know of. And it raises taxes. I mean, it, it's bad on both both sides. And, of course, with all that's going on with inflation, it just adds to the burden that's carried by the American people, and particularly people at the lowest income levels in our society. The, the people who are having a hard time making ends meet are the people who are looking at their gasoline price go up, their home heating oil price go up, their grocery store bill going up. In, in many cases, these are going up by double digits. So when the Democrats tell you, oh, the taxes on people earning under $400,000 aren't going up, there is a tax known as inflation, and that number is going through the roof. Yeah, and the Tax Policy Center, I'll get into these weeds a little bit later in the show, put out their analysis just the other day saying that middle class income earners will see a tax increase in their actual tax bill, 20 to 30 percent of those households under the House bill. So, I mean, it's, it's that's a left-leaning organization that came up with that score. Senator, I just want to touch on something you just mentioned. You feel like this spending is not absolutely essential. That was your term, which is why you feel like, especially these days, uh, we should not be pursuing anything like that. Shall I infer from that answer that because you favored and voted in favor of the infrastructure bill, you do believe that that spending is, in fact, essential right now? I believe it will add to the uh, dynamism of our economy, and it will ultimately help lower the inflationary pressures. Why is that? And that is because when you make rail and transit and highways more efficient, you get goods to the consumer faster. And by doing that, you you increase the supply of goods and services, and as a result of that, you lower the inflationary pressures. So it is good for the economy. It gets people not only back to work, but it allows people to get their goods and services at a more reasonable cost. So it is anti-inflationary, and I think virtually any economist who's looked at it said, yeah, this, this will help reduce inflation. It's paid for. Uh, we're, not, we're not adding to the debt with the, uh, with the bill. And, uh, and for those reasons, I think it's essential. 
uh, to get our get our infrastructure back to back to the level it should have been. By the way, uh, President Trump, when he was in office, uh, proposed I think it was one and a half trillion in infrastructure spending. Uh, he he opened uh, eyes of a lot of Republicans to the wisdom of adding to our infrastructure uh, in, in our nation, and that's simply something which those Republicans that worked in this bill are attempting to do. Last question on this front, Senator. You mentioned the deficit and adding to the deficit. In this case, you say the infrastructure bill is paid for. That's also what the White House is claiming about Build Back Better, although there is a New York Times report now, unsurprisingly, that even with all the smoke and mirrors and all the gimmicks that they've jammed into that reconciliation bill, the White House is now telling congressional Democrats, warning them to brace for a CBO score from the nonpartisan bookkeepers, basically, uh, on Capitol Hill, that is going to be bad for the Democrats, bad for this Build Back Better bill. It will not be all paid for. In fact, the gap could be hundreds of billions of dollars not paid for. And the report in the New York Times last night says that what the White House is urging Democrats on Capitol Hill to do is to ignore the score from CBO, to disregard that number that they might be coming out with as soon as Friday. What is your reaction to the White House reportedly telling Democrats, and it seems like this is now leadership's position as well on Capitol Hill for the Democratic Party, if the numbers don't align, simply ignore them? Well, uh, that that level of dishonesty is not going to sail with the American people. Uh, they, they, the American people will look at those numbers and they'll recognize that, in fact, even if you do the accounting the way the Democrats want you to, it's not paid for. And if you do it honestly, it's really not paid for. And when I say honestly, it's this. When they have a program that they put in place and they say it's going to expire after three years, but then they count as the revenue, 10 years of revenue, that, that's just not honest. And so if you take that program and you run it the full 10 years and match it with your revenues over 10 years, then the gap you're talking about is in the trillions of dollars. So right. the, exactly. the, and that's why I think ultimately you're going to get people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and they're going to say, hey, guys, that that's just not honest. We just can't do it. Senator Romney, you know a thing or two about the Olympics, especially the Winter Olympics, if I recall correctly. I saw one of your tweets earlier in response to reports the Biden administration is preparing to announce a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics next year. Different than a full boycott from the United States, a diplomatic boycott. This is a move that you've been advocating for a while. Explain why, if you would. Well, I think it's critical for us to make very clear to the people in China, but in particular to the people throughout the world and here in our own country, that a nation like China, which is carrying out genocide against a million of its own citizens and is also persecuting other minorities, uh, brutalizing people in Hong Kong, threatening the people uh, in Taiwan, this is not a place that should be hosted the Olympics. We're a little late to change the venue where the Olympics are going to be held. I don't want to make our athletes not be able to compete. They prepare their lives to go to these games, but we should not be sending any diplomats there. And so I, I, I am very uh, insistent that the administration agrees we're not going to send our ambassador there. We're not going to send a delegation from the U.S. We are not going to show up to Beijing. But I must admit, I'm looking forward to hearing the United States national anthem played in China when American athletes beat the rest of the world. Senator Romney, last question. We are just about a week out from Thanksgiving. We've been asking some of our guests about this in the last couple of days. Thanksgiving happens to be, fun fact, my favorite holiday because it's sort of kicking off the holiday season. I also love Christmas, of course. 
Is there a specific tradition in the Romney family that is maybe unusual or particularly meaningful to you for Thanksgivings? Uh, we start off the day with our own football game. Uh, and uh, living in Massachusetts, as we did for 40 years, it was typically cold on Thanksgiving. Uh, the whole family <laughs> yeah. goes out, and, uh, well, I should say all the guys go out. The g- girls sometimes, but not all of them usually. And we have a game of uh, football, and then we come home and watch the NFL, and then it's, uh, it's getting time for dinner. We've got a pretty big family, so can you could, like do full 11-on-11 11 11 maybe? I think we're getting to that point. I've got 25 grandkids at this point, so we're we're going wow. to be expanding expanding the roster. Well, happy Thanksgiving in advance to you and Anne and the whole Romney clan out there in Utah and elsewhere. It's great to talk to you, Senator Romney, here to kick off the show on this Tuesday. We appreciate your time, as we always do. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. Mitt Romney, Republican senator from Utah, on the Guy Benson Show, just getting started live from Florida, the Hard Rock, the Patriot Awards. We've got you covered. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are live from the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel. We're here for the Patriot Awards. Thanks so much for listening to the Guy Benson Show. And coming up in the next segment, Mark Thiessen. Our colleague here at Fox will join us. He's got a superb column at the Washington Post about critical race theory, and he is exposing, I would say, the gaslighting from the left on what is and is not being taught and how they hide behind technicalities. He's got the receipts, he's got the evidence, and he joins us coming up in the next segment. In the meantime, we were just chatting with Senator Romney about inflation, which reminded me of a tweet that I saw this morning when I was getting ready to get on the plane and fly down here to Florida from D.C. Here's what the Associated Press is tweeting. U.S. retail sales rise a healthy 1.7% as Americans shrug off, that's their term, higher prices and spend more on appliances, cars, and at home. And so I saw that tweet and I said, okay, I hope that the economy rebounds. I hope that things get better. I like to see retail sales going up as we're approaching the holidays. However, I'm not so sure about this phraseology that Americans are shrugging off higher prices. In fact, perhaps the reason that they are spending more on these things is related to the higher prices. Right? If prices are up 6%, a 31-year high, people are going to spend a lot more on things, not by their own choice, but because that's what inflation has wrought. That's what this economy is inflicting on them. And if you're looking at your gas bill, your bill to heat your home, your grocery bill, raise your hand if you're shrugging that off. I don't know almost anyone who can shrug it off. Maybe if you're rich enough to be a Democrat. But for most people, it hurts. It pinches. Mark Thiessen on CRT. Coming up next, it's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue on this Tuesday, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your needs related to the program available right there. Also on social media, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow. Have a little video that we made. We have a little Fox Nation step and repeat right next to us here at the Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida. So we're previewing the show. 
pop that on our social media. Again, that is at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. My personal accounts, should you be interested, and I think you should be, quite frankly, at Guy P. Benson. Well, I saw this headline earlier today, and it made me immediately think about the interview that we have planned with Mark Thiessen, who's joining us here in just a moment. This is from Business Insider. Let me just read you the tweet of this story. The Democrats apparently looked at what just happened in Virginia in particular and in a number of states and jurisdictions across the country when it comes to school boards and school issues. And what apparently some of their strategists on the Democratic side have decided is that they need to be more aggressive in their attacks on parents. Here's the tweet. Democratic strategists plan to get aggressive on critical race theory, saying Republicans are putting politicians in charge of the classroom and white supremacists in charge of the curriculum. So I guess they got their asses kicked in Virginia by parents, and they decided, you know what, let's go after them a little bit harder. Let's call them racist a little bit louder. I wonder how that will go in places that are, let's say, even a little bit less blue than Virginia. The arrogance of this is absolutely stunning, but my reaction to this was elation. Go for it. I hope they do this. I hope they give these strategists a raise and that these strategists remain strategizing for them forever because that will, in my view, help conservatives, help Republicans. If the Democrats look at what happened in Virginia and they believe that the strategy here is to double down on the lying and the smearing, it's amazing. And joining us now to discuss precisely this is our colleague here at Fox News, a Fox News contributor, also a columnist at The Washington Post, former presidential speechwriter, Mark Thiessen. Mark, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Guy. Before we get into critical race theory and what I was just talking about in your latest column, I do have to challenge you on a few things. I saw a tweet on your thread. Are you... A Pepsi guy over Coke? I saw that you were somehow arguing that Pepsi Zero is better than Coke products. And, ooh, I mean, we, we might have some beef here. Yeah, I, well, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm not for the people who boycotted Georgia. So I stopped drinking Coke after that. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a soft boycotter in the sense that if I can't find Pepsi, I'll buy Coke. Uh, but if I have a choice between Coke and Pepsi, one, <laughs> it's I a lazy, I don't want lazy to, I don't boycotter. Want to, yeah, exactly. Lazy boycotter. I'm not going to be inconvenienced. <laughs> but if I've got a choice, why would I choose? You know, why would I choose a company that's, uh, that that uh, boy- boycotted uh, the state of Georgia over over false charges of Jim Crow? Um, so I just so well, they've they've backed away. Thing, but but the reality is, I was always a Coke Zero guy, not a Diet Coke guy. I don't like Diet Coke. I think of okay. all, So the scale of diet sodas is is Pepsi Zero is the best, followed by Coke Zero, no. followed by Diet Pepsi. And Diet Coke is at oh. the absolute bottom. So I don't drink any of the diet stuff, but of the zeros, it's, it, I'm a Coke Zero person. I always ha- I have been now for years. In fact, I have two Coke Zeros sitting with me here in our broadcast location. Not that I am addicted per se to Coke Zero sugar, but it's awfully close. I also find it interesting that you're shilling for Pepsi here. Coke Zero, their colors, as you know, are black and red. Pepsi blue and white this also aligns with our hockey teams mark and i wonder if there might be something 
I don't know, subliminal here going on because you like to troll me about the Rangers versus my Devils, although you, you sort of disappear when the Devils win those games. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, P.K. Subban has now uh, taken two players out in two games from the Rangers so uh, with his slew foot activity. So, uh, you know, and but we, we won. Kreider, Kreider did the Subban celebration at the end of the game, so that was well-deserved. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we got a point. Game at the Garden. You're so wise on politics, guy. I, can't, I don't understand how you have such bad taste in hockey teams. But, you know, hey, everybody's got their flaws. Well, I mean, the New Jersey Devils have won three Stanley Cups in my lifetime. How many times have the Rangers won the Stanley Cup in your lifetime? One, but that's okay. We'll, oh, okay. We'll yeah. get so there. I, so I'm, I'm keeping score. We're, you'll get there one day. All right, let's turn to politics in an area of agreement, Mark Thiessen. And you heard my opening into this segment and this new report that apparently what the Democrats and their strategists, the geniuses over there, have decided is – the issue is there was too much misinformation about critical race theory. So what they need to do is gaslight and lie and attack parents harder and play the race card even more aggressively. I would say that I'm shocked, but I'm not really shocked because the bubble that they inhabit is thick. It is pervasive in their social circles. And I'm all for it because I think it's a loser. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you 100%. I guess they just need to come up with their with their lie. Because the, the first thing after Virginia was, CRT is a lie. There's no one teaching CRT. And now it's, oh, we've got to do a better job of defending CRT. So which is it? Uh, is there no CRT? Is this just a figment of the of the right's imagination? Or is, uh, or is CT, CRT actually being taught? But it's a good thing. They, they, they can't get <laughs> Well, that's always their, been. Right. That's the contradiction, right? They've done this over and over again. It's not happening. Uh, they're lying to you. It's fear mongering. It's race baiting, but also it's absolutely essential and good. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the Loudoun County schools, this is, you know, this was the swing district in, uh, in Virginia where this whole, uh, this whole movement started. They spent $314,000 for critical race theory teaching of their uh, coaching of their teachers from a company called the Equity Collaborative, who's whose uh, self-description is that they're a company that turns critical race theory into practices for bringing more equitable learning environments. Um, and they taught Virginia teachers... You're quoting uh, them. That, I'm quoting them right now. That's, yeah, exactly. They have a presentation called Introduction to Critical Race Theory. They, they instruct teachers that, quote, racism is an inherent part of American civilization, and they attack, quote, the ideas of colorblindness, the neutrality of law, incremental change, equal opportunity for all, while maintaining, quote, white power and stronghold within society. And it questions the idea of meritocracy, which allows the empowered to feel good. And then they had a breakout session on how you can use CRT to identify and address systemic oppression in your school. This is, the Loudoun County Schools paid $314,000 for this. Um, so don't tell me they're not teaching critical race theory in schools because they've been indoctrinating the teachers in how to indoctrinate the kids. Well, just to hold up here, Mark, because I want to make sure that we're understanding what you're saying correctly, and this is all listed and quoted specifically in your latest Washington Post column, what this organization that was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by the Loudoun County Schools in Virginia to come in and do this indoctrination session with their teachers, this group, the Equity Collaborative, is opposed to, they are attacking colorblindness, neutrality of law, incremental change, equal opportunity, meritocracy. They are against those things, correct? They are against those things. Those, those things perpetuate <laughs> white supremacy. 
uh, in their view. They taught, they taught, this is from the talking points they used for the, uh, for the teaching of uh, Virginia teachers. They encouraged them not to profess colorblindness, but admit their own racist, heterosexist, heterosexist, or other detrimental attitudes, belief, behaviors, and feelings, and acknowledge that addressing one's whiteness, e.g. white privilege, is crucial to effective teaching, unquote. I mean, somebody paid them for this. Taxpayers. In, in Virginia, where, where we were told over and over again none of this stuff was happening. And it's not just Virginia, of course. You talk about New York City, where school administrators have gone through trainings where they are told that, quote, objectivity and, quote, individualism are part of, quote, white supremacy culture. You write that in California, students as young as six, so first graders, also being taught lessons inspired by CRT about white privilege and structural racism. This is the inherent contradiction that you really spoke to earlier in this segment. The same exact people who angrily insist that this stuff is non-existent. It's a figment of our imagination. It's just these you know, right-wing figures. It's Fox News. They're spoon-feeding lies to a bunch of parents. Of course, the parents can see it. I have a friend with young kids. She got the first equity CRT-related pamphlet for her daughter, who I believe is seven or eight now, just this past summer. Parents are experiencing this. And what the left and the progressives and the teachers unions and these special interests in the Democratic Party and much of the media, what they all say from their script, from their hymnal, their left wing progressive hymnal is it's a lie. It's not happening. And then when they get beaten on these issues, they say what we need to do really is talk about people who are against this stuff are engaged in censorship and white supremacy. It is absolutely incoherent. It's also deeply insulting and i wonder would it take another shellacking mark for them to learn their lesson or are lessons never learned on the left yeah i don't think they're learned on the left i mean look what they what they their problem is this is that what blew the lid off of this whole crt story was not fox news was the, as much as we love but we both love fox news it wasn't uh you know any columnist or anything like that it was the coronavirus pandemic because what you know, think about this: if you're if, if you're a parent before the pandemic hit, you drop your kids off at school, you give them a kiss, you go to work, you pick them up at the carpool lane, you come home, you have dinner, you ask them how the day their day went, and you have no insight into what they're see, hearing in the classroom. And then when the corona when the pandemic hit, parents were stuck at home working online, and their kids were doing online school, and so they were able to actually listen to their what their kids were actually being taught in the classroom, and this coincided with the whole George Floyd and the, ra- and the racial justice protests and the, the explosion of this teaching in their schools, and the parents were listening. They were in the classroom. So when you say that no one's being taught CRT, they're saying, yes, they are, because I was there. I was in the classroom. Yeah, I saw it. Listening I to it. my kids being taught that, that their whiteness is a sign of oppression, that this is our society is broken into oppressors and oppressed, and which you are depends on the color of your skin to look at everything through the prism of race uh, and that America is a racist country and it's systemically yep. racist country. So I don't know, you know, these pe- people can call it a lie all they want, but the parents were there, you know? Yep. And this is the thing, you know, Terry McAuliffe, the failed Democratic candidate in Virginia, he said over and over again, it's not happening. It's not taught in Virginia schools. One Democrat after another said the same thing. Barack Obama denied it. The White House from the podium denied it. They all 
engaged in this widespread gaslighting. And then you give counterexamples and you point to the website, for example, of the Virginia Department of Education. And you and I, I think, both respect our colleague Juan Williams. We had him on the show not too long ago about this because he wrote a whole column buying into the left-wing line here. And I challenged him with just a few of the examples that you're talking about. And with all due respect to Juan, it's like he had never heard these things and was totally unresponsive. He did not even attempt to counter the points that I was raising on this front. And so, I mean, if they want to delude themselves into believing that this is, you know, um, fertile ground for them politically over on the left, by all means. I mean, I feel like Republicans certainly should welcome it, but it is still kind of wild to see a bunch of people insist that what is literally occurring provably all over the place isn't true, but at the same time, the right thing. You know, here's the, here's the problem in general. This is a broader problem on the left, is that you say that they're gaslighting us on CRT. They gaslight us on everything. Joe, Joe Biden gaslighted us on, on Afghanistan. Every, everybody in the world saw what a disaster it was, and he says it's an extraordinary success. And so people look at him and say, what's wrong with you? you I, I watched the people falling from airplanes. It's not an extraordinary success. They say, oh, well, you know, the supply chain crisis, it's not, it's, uh, it's not a, a big problem. It's transitory. And these people are like, I, the price of my bacon just went up $3 a pound. The store shelves are empty. I, can't, I went three times to the store to get uh, paper towels, and I can't get them. What are you talking about? You know, if you continuously say things that people's lived experience show, tells them is not true, then they stop trusting you. And this is what's happening. And on by the way, it's not just CRT. It's a whole bunch of things. Mark, a friend just sent me this during the segment. Uh, a woman called Tara Setmeyer, who's at the Lincoln Project. And I know Tara a little bit. I haven't talked to her in years. Nice lady. But I mean, she's sort of gone off the deep end in this stuff. Uh, and I say that, you know, with with all due affection and they're talking about this exact issue. And here's her take on it. Quote, critical race theory is the new N word for Republicans. Mark, this is, aside from how deeply offensive and insulting that comparison is, it's not going to fly. That is not going to work. I invite them to stick with this line. Our column on, on critical race theory, and I encourage people to listen to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On, because we had Professor Alan Well, A lot of people don't really know what critical race theory is. We know, we all know that, that, that they're teaching our kids to hate America, to see through, to see through the prism of race, uh, to not be colorblind, and that's terrible. But critical race theory is a really, really pernicious ideology. And I asked Professor Alan Guelzo to come on the podcast, and I wrote a column uh, at the Washington Post based on our interview. And one of the things he explains is that critical race theory is a subset of something called critical theory, which is what gave us the rise of Marxism, right? They, they, it taught us that uh, the, the Marxists took critical theory and said the world is divided between oppressors and oppressed, the bourgeoisie are the oppressors, the proletariat are the oppressed, and we see everything through the prism of that, right? And that what, the, what, the, what critical race theory is, 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 is it transposes is it from class same, to race. Transposing, yeah, exactly. For the Marxist, for the, for the Soviet Union, it was the, pro, the bourgeoisie were the oppressors. In, in critical race theory, all white people are oppressors. And so, you know, yep. it's, it's literally Marxist theory applied to the question of race. And this is incredibly, and it's not, Mark, incredibly dangerous. And it's not, as some people argue wrongly, against a totally made-up straw man. It is not 
people objecting to the teaching of slavery or Jim Crow or anything like that. Every conservative that I know says, yes, teach the great, the good, the bad, and the ugly in our history. This CRT, this basket of issues, is totally separate from that. It's something altogether different, and they are lying to us, and they're calling us racist. This is the N-word. Apparently, this conversation that we're having, Mark, according to this Democratic strategist, is the N-word these days. And, I mean, I fully, forcefully object to that. I reject it completely, and a lot of people do. It is delusional stuff, and as I've said now for like the seventh time in this interview, I hope they stick with this because it is deeply alienating to a lot of people. Mark Thiessen, I wanted to ask you about Afghanistan and the Taliban flying our helicopters in a military parade. Disgraceful. We don't have time for it this time, but we'll have you back next time for sure. Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, former presidential speechwriter, Fox News contributor, fan of the wrong soda and hockey team. Mark, we always appreciate it. You guys, take care. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, there was that big uh, bill signing at the White House yesterday. And there was one significant cringy mishap. I'll give you one guess who it featured. Cut four. Please welcome Heather Kurtenbach. In a moment. <laughs> oh, our vice president. I mean, she got a bad break there, but still, and the laugh. You know, Madam Vice President, Veep is not a documentary. I don't know if you know that. Next hour of the Guy Benson Show, coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We are underway. We are live. Thank you for listening. How it's now, uh, let's see, two days off from Thanksgiving? We are getting very close. Tuesday ahead of the Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free of charge. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel. Hope you will tune in for that with Brett Bayer and that whole team in the 6 p.m. hour Fox News Channel. Fox News alert here as we begin hour number two. The Dow closes in the green today, up 194 points, closing at 35,813. So as I mentioned at the very end of the last hour, we want to take some of your phone calls. And our phone number here, toll free at the Guy Benson Show, is 833-456-1300. 1300. And the question for the audience is, what are you thankful for over the last year? Something specific for you or your family. It could be related to work or a job. It could be related to something in your family or a family dynamic. It could be related to your health. It could be related to something that you're passionate about. I think this week Every year in particular, we should really lean into the thanks in Thanksgiving. Gratitude is very important. In fact, my father sent me in the commercial break at the top of the hour an article from a few years ago from Psychology Today. And the headline is, Seven Scientifically Proven 
benefits of gratitude. Gratitude is actually healthy for you. Aside from just being, I think, good and the right thing to do, being a grateful person, counting your blessings, identifying them, even speaking them out loud, expressing gratitude, it's good for your physical health. It's good for your mental health. And Thanksgiving is an all-American holiday built around the concept of thanks and gratitude. Part of the reason why it's my favorite holiday, as I say over and over again. Our phone number here, 833-456-1300. Let's do some gratitude together. I want to hear from you. Why are you thankful this year? 833-456-1300. Let's begin with Deb in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Deb, I'm so glad you're listening, and I'm so glad you called. Thank you, Guy. Thank you so much to be grateful for this year, despite everything, but mostly for being cancer-free after a breast cancer diagnosis in February. So God is very good. Oh, my goodness. So you were diagnosed at the beginning of the year with breast cancer, and you're now cancer-free. Did I hear that right? Yes, I am cancer-free due to the the great medical facilities down here in Jupiter, Florida, and my wonderful doctors and the grace of God. Oh, my gosh. That is, I mean, what a way to begin this segment. A cancer-free diagnosis. What was that like when you saw your doctor or got off the phone with your doctor, however it was communicated, that your test came back clean? It was great relief because it was just through a normal routine examination that the cancer was diagnosed. So I wasn't expecting the diagnosis. And you hear the word cancer and it just kind of paralyzes you until you take a deep breath and move on so you can let's rectify this and get it done with. So I have great surgeon, great radiology, and great oncology. And yes, it was wow. a great relief and very celebratory. Well, Deb... That is just a wonderful story to hear. Happy Thanksgiving. Really, I can imagine that word really, as scary as it is, can drive home how precious and special life is, especially around the holidays with your family and your friends. We're so thrilled that you're listening. We're so thrilled that you got that great news. Uh, Have a great Thanksgiving, Deb, and thank you for calling. Thanksgiving to you. God bless. God bless. 833-456-1300. Wow. You don't have to top that, right? You don't have to top it with, uh, you know, a a cancer-free diagnosis. That is amazing. It can be things really big like that or small. That's the beauty of gratitude. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Let's go to Lori in Sacramento, California. Lori, you're on The Guy Benson Show. Hi, Guy. Great to talk to you again. Um, I wanted to let you know about my daughter, Karen. She quit her management job after I had open heart surgery in November of 2017. And she has stayed home to take care of me ever since. Created her own business, so she's not destitute. But she is just an amazing daughter. And her boyfriend is an amazing boyfriend. Wow. So you are thankful for your daughter and her boyfriend who have really taken care of you through some really tough times. And uh, that's what family is for. That's what Thanksgiving is for. Are you going to be spending Thanksgiving with them? Yes, I am. 
Oh, well, it's that's be what amazing. a blessing. Shopping right now. Oh, well, that's, I mean, good luck. <laughs> it's wild out there right now, the Tuesday before the Thursday. But it's great to hear from you, Lori. I'm glad that you are, that you're feeling well and that your daughter is there for you. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving, Lori. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Guy. I really appreciate it. 833-456-1300. Thanksgiving. Let's give thanks. Why are you grateful this year? What's happened in your life in the last year that has allowed you to count that as a blessing in your life? It can be anything of huge magnitude or not. 833-456-1300. Toll free here at The Guy Benson Show. Let's see. Francis is in North Carolina, the Tar Heel State. Welcome, Francis. Hey, Guy. I'm thankful for you and your show. I'm a first-time caller because I listen to you out on my runs. Um, and I usually listen to the recording the day before. So I just tried. I'm at the end of my run. I'm so thankful for friends, family, and freedom, but especially listening to your show and uh, help, you helping me get through my run. It's beautiful. Oh, today. my gosh. Beautiful. Oh, well, that means so much to me. That is so delightful for you to say. I'm very impressed. At the end of a run for me, I am unable to speak to anyone for about 15 minutes. So the fact that you're calling us up, you're like barely out of breath. I'm very impressed. You must be in great shape. And hopefully uh, the show helps you pick up that pace while you're out there every day listening to the podcast. That is awesome. Thank you, Francis. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. I promise we didn't plan that. That's so that's awesome. Thank you, Francis. It means a lot. I'm smiling. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Why are you thankful this year specifically? Don is in Illinois, my former home state. Don, welcome to the Guy Benson show. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Guy. I'm a first-time caller. My thankfulness goes back actually a year and two months. Uh my youngest son who's been in the Marine Corps 8 years uh was in Beirut, Lebanon when that blast went off. Oh my gosh. And, uh, he was about a thousand yards away from it when it went off. He was in an armored suburban vehicle going to the embassy. Wow. And he made it. Buildings were falling down around him. And he almost didn't make it out of Lebanon. The reason he didn't almost make it out of Lebanon, and people in the United States have never heard this story, uh, he was considered an Israeli diplomat because he was in Israel for a year. And the Hezbollah terrorist group owns that and runs the airport over there. And they actually own the newspaper. They put my name, my son's name, in the newspaper and actually blamed him for the blast and almost did not make it out of Lebanon. And there's still not really the, – the government there has never really given an explanation for that massive explosion just over a year ago in Beirut. But I, I am taking it, Don – that he did make it out and that he is okay? He did make it out when he got back to Quantico, Virginia. His colonel called him into his office and says, that's a badge of honor. You was on a terrorist hit list and you made it out. Nobody makes it out. You cannot never go back there. Well, please thank your son for his service. We are so glad to hear that he's okay. And that would be a big one when it comes to giving thanks. Don, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your phone call. And I could hear the emotion in your voice, obviously. I mean, how can you not how could you not feel that way about your own son? Thank God he's okay. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300.
1300. Why are you thankful this year? Megan is in Buffalo, New York. Megan, welcome. Thank you so much, Guy. How are you? I'm very well. Good. So this year, I'd say, I mean, I'm thankful every day, but I'm thankful to be a proud patriot in this country. Um, I'm thankful to be free for our freedom. And I'm also thankful, I'm sorry, I'm a little emotional. I'm um, a mom, and my daughter is turning one on Black Friday. So I'm just very thankful to have her in our life. Yeah. Very excited. What's her first name? Her name is Harlow. Harlow. And she was born almost a year ago. Can you believe that it's been a year? I feel like year one of parenting is probably quite a roller coaster. It is. It's insane. She was born on Thanksgiving, so I had my turkey dinner um, during quarantine in the hospital. So this year we're able to be home and cook (laughs) dinner as a family and be with my parents. So I'm very excited. Oh, we love that. Well, Megan, thank you for listening. Our best to your daughter. Have a great, great Thanksgiving, okay? Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving, Guy. Take care. You too. Megan on The Guy Benson Show. I want to hear from you. 833-456-1300. Toll free. 833-456-1300. What are you grateful and thankful for over the last year or so? As I said, gratitude, I think, is it's a big part of my life. It's good for you. It's good for the soul. And this is the time of year where I think we should really think and talk about it. Tell us your story. 833-456-1300. More of your calls as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Our phone number here at The Guy Benson Show, 833-456-1300. The calls are pouring in on thankfulness and gratitude, and I want to get to as many of them as I possibly can in the remainder of this segment. So let's get going. Lisa, Michigan, you're up first this segment. Thanks for calling, Lisa. Hi. Hi. So what are you thankful for this year? I'm thankful for my four boys. They've made my life amazing, and they're all adults, and I love them with all my heart. I'm thankful for that. Four boys. That's a handful, but sounds like they're, uh, they're out and about in the world now, and uh, family is the most important thing. Lisa, that's fantastic. Thank you for calling. 833-456-1300. Sarah is in Idaho. Sarah, great to have you here. Thanks for calling. Guy, we just wanted to say we're thankful for having you guys to set the record straight with all the negative that's going on in the world today and all the facts you give us is makes us very grateful and very thankful to have you. Oh, well, well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I know that's what we try to do here every day. Uh, it's sometimes hard. Things are crazy, but we wouldn't be here without you. That's one of my number one pieces of gratitude every year is this audience and working here. It's a real honor. Thank you, Sarah, for listening. 833-456-1300. Jimmy in Virginia. Jimmy, you're on. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. Happy I Thanksgiving. I I'm real grateful because my son came down with leukemia in March. He went into remission in September. We found wow. a 10% uh, well, actually 10 for 10 on uh, a match and he goes in after Thanksgiving right after for his bone marrow. Uh, wow. God bless us. We're so happy. 
That is amazing. Our very best to you and your family and your son. May that uh, continue to be the case that he's in remission and beat cancer. That's great to hear, Jimmy. Really encouraging. Thank you so much for the call. 833-456-1300. Perk is in Maryland, just up the road from here. Perk, welcome. Hey, how you doing? I am so thankful that I'm not going to Cookie's Thanksgiving Massacre. I mean, dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. And I'm going to give her a hard time about that again later for people who have no idea what you're talking about. Christine and her ridiculous, quote-unquote, Thanksgiving feast. Oh, that's good, Perk. Thanks for the call. Thank you for listening. 833-456-1300. I'm also grateful for that, come to think of it. 833-456-1300. John is on the line from Florida. John, welcome to the Guy Benson Show. How are you, sir? I'm thankful for being able to get out of New York and buy a beautiful home at Port St. Lucie. God smiled upon me, and I was able to get out before it, it got worse. Well, congratulations and a beautiful house in a free state, and I hope that you have a great, warm Thanksgiving down there in Florida. John, thank you for listening. Thank you for calling. 833-456-1300, what are you thankful for? Jerry is in Arkansas. Jerry, welcome. Hi. Hi, Guy. I am thankful for you guys for one thing, because you you bring us the truth um, versus all of the other media, and we love that. But I also want to say that I'm so grateful for my family. I have a wonderful, supportive husband, and uh, just God has blessed us immensely. I'm thankful for our Lord and Jesus Christ, and uh, I'm a blind woman. Um, I'm sitting here in my kitchen. I've made, um, this is my third thing of dressing and three things of, of pecan pies and and all kinds of stuff and I'm oh just, wow um, i'm great <laughs> well that sounds that sounds absolutely delicious and jerry that is such a beautiful phone call and we're so glad that we are here for you every day thank you for listening thank you for calling us have a great thanksgiving and now i'm getting a little hungry hearing about uh, all that cooking you're doing down there in arkansas we really appreciate it jerry Let's see. Jared is in Illinois. Jared, you're on. It's the Guy Benson Show. Hey, how's it going, guys? Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, Thank you. I am thankful for... It's been a a hard year. Uh, I lost my dad uh, in May, and I lost my mom right there in June. Oh, my gosh. And back-to-back, yeah, it was pretty shocking. Um... But I'm thankful uh, for being able to be there for my dad, hold his hand while he took his last breath. And I was also uh, thankful for doing the same with mom uh, in the hospital, being able to hold her hand while she took her last breath and make sure they didn't go alone and they went peacefully and comfortably and it's just been a really hard time, been a really hard year, but you know, there's still a lot to be thankful for. Wow. And for you to find the gratitude in that is just moving. I'm sorry so much for your loss, but I'm sure uh, they were grateful to have you, their son, there uh, to be with them as they were, you know, f- facing eternity. That's that is really something. Well, that's a great call. And I, we're up on this break, so we've got to take it. I, there's a caller out in California grateful for his job. I am right there with you, sir. I'm very grateful for this job, and I wouldn't have it if not for this great team. 
our bosses here at Fox who let me be on the air every day, and all of you who listen. Also, I see a listener in Atlanta, 106.3 Extra Country, who just got out of the hospital. Grateful for that. We are too, sir. Feel better. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. But we're not done. We're halfway through the show. Much more to come. It is The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back with Woke Tales. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show, halfway through on this Tuesday. Short week, Thanksgiving week. I saw a cartoon from The New Yorker, which is a boss addressing his whole team at the conference table at an office saying, all right, folks, we've got a very short week here for the holidays. So everyone get out there and pretend like you're doing something for three days. (laughs) I think some people might be able to relate. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. So we talked about this briefly yesterday. There's an update. And the story is mass looting and crime in the Bay Area, where the prosecutors have basically decided to decriminalize crime, and the criminals have noticed and therefore done more crimes. Now, if you can get away with lots of crimes, even if you get caught, likelihood low that you will, you'll be fine. You probably won't be prosecuted because progress and equity. So crime has soared. Shoplifting all over the place. Walgreens, CVS is closing because they just can't handle the explosion of brazen shoplifting every day. I mean, you know, burglaries all over the place. Smash and grabs with cars. That is a real problem in San Francisco. Muggings. It's bad. It's really bad. And this is what the DA out there, Chisa Bodine, the son of domestic terrorists, literally, This is what he has wrought. This is what he wants. This is his policy. In fairness to him, it was also his campaign. And the people said, yes, we want this. Let's do this. Let's decriminalize crime. Not going well, and now he's facing a recall. People aren't happy. And now he's trying to pretend like he's outraged by the outcomes that he has caused and incentivized. Here's what's happened just in the last few days. There were three consecutive days of completely out of control mass looting events in the Bay Area. So on Friday, uh, dozens of people just overwhelmed a Louis Vuitton store and made off with many thousands of dollars of merchandise. That was downtown San Francisco Friday. Then on Saturday, more than 80 people This is USA Today. Stormed and robbed a Nordstrom in California Saturday night. The robbery was over within minutes as thieves armed with crowbars and wearing ski masks streamed out of the Nordstrom into dozens of cars lining the block. So the getaway cars were all just right there waiting. One employee was pepper sprayed. Two were punched and kicked. So we've got some assault in here, too. Remember, they always say, oh, these stores... They all have insurance, ignoring the underinsurance issue, the fact that insurance does not pay for everything, the fact that people having their workplaces ransacked or in some of these riots, their businesses torched, has a massive impact on them. And a bunch of these elitist leftists just sort of sniff at this problem. Oh, there's insurance. 
this is just an expression, a cry against injustice. Everyone needs to calm down. Well, of course, when you have chaos and lawlessness, you get violence as well. It's not a victimless crime. In this case, you've got assaults. We've seen people killed, arson, other things. When you downplay crime or excuse it or justify it, you get more of it. And it's not just the okay, quote unquote, kind of crime that you think is fine. That's one of the lessons of the last year and a half. And I think there's been needed intense blowback against this really out of touch, outrageous sneering elitism that's effectively pro-crime. Although once it starts hurting those people directly and they start seeing it, then they seem to become a little bit less enamored. Isn't that strange? So that was Saturday. How about Sunday, the very next day? This would be day three of this out in the Bay Area. Looters targeting Bay Area businesses struck again Sunday evening with smash and grab thieves hitting a mall in Hayward, California. It was the third day in a row that large mobs of robbers went after retailers in the region. 40 to 50 looters wielding hammers and other tools looted Sam's Jewelers, breaking glass cases and quickly fleeing. Employees were screaming inside, screaming in fear. Meanwhile, in San Jose, this is yet another instance on Sunday, a Sunday evening, police said a group of suspects entered Lululemon in Santana Row and took merchandise, fleeing before the police arrived. So why do I put all of this in the bucket of woke tales? Well, I think when you have woke prosecutors decriminalizing crime, that translates into being pro-crime. They have done this. Yes, the criminals are responsible, but so are the so-called authorities. But it becomes an official full-blown woke tale story with this headline from ABC7 out in San Francisco. Experts caution against use of looting in describing the rash of Bay Area robberies. So here we have, thank God for experts, that these experts just weigh in at all times. I put experts in quotes much of the time where people either invent their expertise or appeal to their alleged expertise just to boss people around. And also the experts, and I believe in expertise. I believe in actual knowledge and data and science and that sort of thing. But I also know and we've all learned that a lot of the alleged so-called experts have gotten a lot of things very wrong, which is why Americans in many cases, do not simply bow to expertise at every turn, much to the chagrin of the experts. But here are the experts admonishing the rest of us. Don't call it looting. Now, I actually don't necessarily disagree. Looting, you think of an out-of-control riot and buildings on fire, people rushing in and taking things during mass unrest which, I will add, is also terrible, wrong, bad, and inexcusable. This is much more akin to organized mass crime with getaway cars and everything like that. If that's the argument, let's not call that looting because it's a different criminal phenomenon. Fine, but that is not what the experts are telling us. Quote, looting is a term that we typically use when people of color or urban dwellers are doing something. We do not use that term for other people when they do the exact same thing. 
To be clear, we don't know the identities or races of the majority of the thieves involved in this crime wave. So it's racist to use the word looting because it's people of color and urban dwellers. But in this case, we don't know what color the looters are, but we're just going to assume it's racist anyway, which strikes me as a little bit racist, actually. So we can't say woke. We can't say looting. The list goes on and on, and I'm wondering, when will we finally defund the language police? That's Woke Tales, and this is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Thanksgiving week on The Guy Benson Show, and part of the great thing surrounding Thanksgiving, my favorite holiday, of course, is not just the food, not just the family, Not just the football, but a fourth good F word. Friends. And one of my dear friends, who I have not seen in far too long, but she has joined us on this program several times in the last year and a half, is Kelly Maher from RealBestLife.com. You might remember her homegrown challenge where she farmed for a year and survived off of her farm. Things that she grew or animals that she raised, eggs, the meat, etc. from her farm for a full calendar year. And she did it during the pandemic. She had four cheat meals the entire year. There were certain rules about bartering. We discussed it on the show. We got quite a lot of feedback. People were fascinated by this challenge, but she pulled it off. And she felt better and healthier than ever at the conclusion of that year And now she rejoins me, free from the shackles of all the rules, but getting ready for Thanksgiving. And Kelly, hello, love. Welcome back. How are you? I am doing very well. I hope to see you when I'm out in Colorado in December. We will have to coordinate that, hopefully. I do want to ask you about last Thanksgiving, when you were still under all the strictures of homegrown year, Versus this Thanksgiving. Compare and contrast for us, please. So last year was, it was a tough Thanksgiving, mostly just because of the pandemic, I think. Uh, You know, my in-laws are are older, and at that point, vaccines were not available. So we stayed home, and uh, as you know, you have met him, my bird dog, Oxley, uh... He took care of my stash of turkeys uh, just a few weeks before Thanksgiving because I bought turkeys that were heritage birds and did not realize that they could fly as effectively into a dog pen as they did. So I ended up having deer for Thanksgiving last year. Venison, if you will. Yeah, yep. I had deer. Venison. Because and, uh, your dog had eaten the turkeys. I did not we're, get turkey because the dog ate the turkeys. Weren't you also growing attached to your turkeys? Yep. Sure was. And So, so were you planning on sparing them anyway and then the dog got them? Yeah, the plan, the plan was maybe to have a single turkey and then they all flew over the fence. And only two, only two lived didn't fly apparently they were watching the other ones and were like oh maybe we shouldn't fly over there 
And uh, so I had two left, one male, one female, fortunately. So I kept both of them so that I could keep their eggs and breed them. And now we have plenty of turkeys this year. Okay, so you're having more homegrown turkey, if you will, but you actually can eat turkey. What about the fixins? Were you able to do the fixins last year or some of them? Your husband and your kids, were they able to eat normal Thanksgiving oh. while you were eating venison? Yeah, they had, they had a great Thanksgiving last year. I actually did fairly well. We pulled out some of the corn that we grew and put it in a grain mill. Uh, and so I made a cornbread and then I very um, lightly sauteed some onions from the garden in goat butter, and I did that with venison. So that was my meal. And then the boys had a pretty traditional meal. Um, and I, I also had some potatoes that I grew. Potatoes grow fairly well here. So it's not actually going to be that different uh, this year because we also did grow our own turkey this year as well. So you have... I mean, if you think about if you think about a farm meal, it's really largely Thanksgiving fare. Right? Yeah, that actually makes sense, right? There are yeah. other meals that would be a lot trickier. Thanksgiving, a lot of it can be grown, and you have proven that. You do have on your website, realbestlife.com, a premium Thanksgiving guide. Explain what this is. Yeah, so this every year I'm the person who makes the Thanksgiving meal. And so um, actually, per our last conversation, you know, I'm, I'm working on the book. I am doing it, guy. Excellent. Um, but I went ahead and started a sub stack, which is like the thing that all aspiring writers are doing. And as part of it, I created what is called a printable, which is literally just a PDF, right, for our premium subscribers to be able to kind of work through their Thanksgiving meal and include my shopping list, which, of course, you know me, includes really good orange juice and some very terrible sparkling wine for mornings with your in-laws. But it includes a sample schedule, tips on how to cook a turkey, how to make gravy. It also includes my Grammy's green bean casserole recipe and uh, my my family's, my Aunt Mimi's, Kentucky pecan pie. So That also sounds delicious. Uh, two questions yep. that are prompted from that last answer. Number one, you said you do the cooking for Thanksgiving. Your husband is a very good cook. Does he not participate? Is this is your show, basically? This is, this is my one show. Mark okay. loves to cook, but this is, this is my one day that is all me. And I get up at 6. Because turkey is actually best if you put it in the oven at room temperature. So you need to pull it out an hour before you plan on even putting it in the oven. And for some reason, this is the one meal a year that dinner is at noon, which I don't understand. But Okay, you know. so that was my next question. What time do you eat Thanksgiving dinner? Because I was having, uh, shall we say, a fairly cordial dispute with Adam about this just yesterday. And I have a strong feeling about this. You have now, I think, thrown out a third option. You eat Thanksgiving at noon? Yeah, but we're hunters. So we have to nap and then wake up and then hit the field before sundown. Oh, so you go hunting after you eat? Yeah. 
Oh, no. Once the eating begins at our house, it is over. There is no activity <laughs> after that. You should not plan on going anywhere aside from the couch. That is what we uh, do. I, so I have lived this, guy. Remember the last time I was at your house and ate and then just, like, fell onto the couch and didn't I think do. I was going to get up again? Yeah, it was for yeah. the best that you just stayed put right there for quite some time. Uh, yep. It's wonderful. Now, for me, and this has always been the case, Thanksgiving dinner is late afternoon. Like 3 to 4 p.m. is when we sit down for dinner. We have snacks and appetizers earlier, but the actual, you know, carving of the turkey and fill up your plate, let's just say 3.30 p.m. on average. Adam thinks it should be like a real dinner time, like 6 o'clock or later, which I think is wrong. I think that you have – you at least start your Thanksgiving meal with the sun still out. That is my experience, and I'm – we might have to – ask the rest of the team here because now we have a noon a mid-afternoon and an evening answer i believe that most americans eat mid-afternoon i could be wrong about that that is my understanding of what is normal maybe i am just wildly out of touch but i don't think so i'm a man of the people i I understand i'm a finger on the pulse of america that's what i do here and i think that mid-afternoon is what americans do yeah, it no, is, I think I think you're probably right. We eat at noon just because we have things to do. And half of the family passes out and watches football, and the other half goes out and looks for pheasants. So Okay, I would be in the football half of that family. Yeah, shop, Very quickly, shop. why at what time is Thanksgiving dinner? It's about 1 or 2. 1 or 2. Okay, we're getting wildly different answers here. Christine, what time is Thanksgiving dinner? 1 p.m. on the dot. Dan, Overlock, what time is Thanksgiving dinner? 2 p.m. sharp. 2 p.m. sharp. Okay, so we have a wide array between noon and 6, the average of which I'm going to point out is 3. So I'm going to say I'm correct. This should be a poll. We're going to put this poll on Twitter. At Guy Benson Show, go vote. We'll give you a few different options, and we'll see what America truly believes. Kelly Maher, realbestlife.com. My life will get even better when I see you next, hopefully next month. Give a big hug to your whole family, especially your wallaby. And we love you dearly. Happy Thanksgiving. Love you, too. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern and available for free on demand around the clock, GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live there and, of course, to get that free podcast. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We actually introduced some friends to the Long Drink for the first time this weekend. They were big fans. They're heading back to Colorado. They're going to become consumers. 
TheLongDrink.com is the website for that beverage. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. We are joined once again by Chris Christie here on the show. He was the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey, a Republican and author of a brand new book. It comes out tomorrow everywhere. It is entitled Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Governor Christie, welcome back. Happy to be back, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start on the book. And you've been seeding this message now for months. I've seen some of your speeches, some of your public comments, building up to the release of Republican Rescue and some of the concerns that you have. And on the back flap, you lay out really the fundamental questions that you think need to be answered by Republicans, not just the party, but really voters of the Republican Party, the rank and file, the faithful. You ask this, why did we lose, talking about 2020, and what do we need to do differently to make sure we win? So before I ask you any more specific questions about the book or your thesis, why don't we just start there? Why did we lose in your opinion, talking about the Republican Party, and what does the GOP need to do differently in whether it's 2022 or certainly 2024 to achieve a different outcome? Well, I think, listen, we lost in 2020, I believe, for two primary reasons. Uh, The first was, uh, you know, the White House's response to COVID, which I think in the beginning was slow and was a little tone deaf in terms of how concerned people really were. Um, and and what that response was in terms of saying it was just going to go away. When the weather got warm, it was going to get better. Um, and, and, it, and people just thought that the White House was not providing the type of leadership that they wanted or needed um, for COVID. Um, and governors, by contrast, guy all over the country, whether they're Republican or Democrat, no matter which approach they took, the, the more severe shutdown approach that Democrats generally took, or, or the more open approach that Republicans took, no matter who the governor was, they did very well in terms of their ratings with the voters because they seemed engaged and, 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 and on top of things. And to many voters, the White House didn't. And really, except for Gavin Newsom, Donald Trump was the only executive who saw his ratings going down during COVID. Second piece is I think that we lost a lot of white, suburban, educated voters who were turned off by the president's personality and approach um, to dealing with some of the problems of the country, not from a policy perspective, quite frankly, but just from a personal perspective. And I think that both of those things were the, were the main drivers of us losing the election in 2020. And then, obviously, in your view, a pivot would be necessary. We just saw Republicans racking up victories and making significant gains just, what, two weeks ago almost exactly two weeks ago, in elections in blue states and elsewhere. Has the pivot already happened, or are there some things that need to happen in your mind in order for the Republican Party to win some national elections coming up, not just a few sort of uh, precursor elections? The pivot has begun, but has not been completed. And I think Glenn Youngkin obviously showed in Virginia that if you talk about the future, if you talk about things that parents care about, like education, if you 
talk about things that hard working middle class voters care about, like eliminating the grocery tax. These are things that were big issues in Virginia that had nothing to do with national Republican politics per se, but had everything to do with the quality of life of people in Virginia. And he ran against an opponent who was still talking about the past, running a majority of his, of his commercials about Donald Trump. Um, and it didn't work when contrasted with a Republican who provided the type of conservative, smart vision for the future that Glenn Youngkin did. And the same with Jack Cittarelli in New Jersey, even though he fell short by about two and a half points. um, That race was a 15-point race two weeks out. He closed incredibly strong, and for the first time in years, Republicans picked up seats in the state legislature, in both houses of the state legislature, and narrowed the Democratic majorities. In both of those cases, Neither of those candidates had President Trump in to campaign for them, I think, because they feared he would be talking about the past, about his allegations about election theft and all the rest. And they knew that that's not what voters wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about what are our plans for the future of Virginia and New Jersey. If House members and Senate members and gubernatorial candidates in 2022 keep that in mind, um, and most importantly, if the former president would keep it in mind, um, I think we'd see smashing victories for the Republican Party in 2022. Well, we've seen that the former president doesn't have that in mind. In fact, just the opposite. He talks about 2020 constantly in his public statements, in the email blast that he puts out. We heard that recent interview, the excerpt with John Carl for his book, where he couldn't really bring himself to criticize the people who were chanting for the hanging of his vice president at the time, Mike Pence, on January the 6th. It seems like he is all in on the stolen election theory, and so is a lot of the base, Governor. I gave a speech recently where I was talking about some of the real gains being made by Republicans with actual results fortifying those points, and when it got to Q&A, almost every question I got was about voter fraud and stolen elections, and I did my best to answer them thoughtfully and talk about some of the reforms made in places like Georgia and Texas But I think that there's at least a lot of people who just do not believe, and probably some people listening to us right now, do not believe that Trump really lost last year. And I'm trying to figure out how that can be reconciled, especially when you've got a lot of folks, including Trump himself, very invested in that story. Well, I think that's part of the reason I wrote the book. Because as you know, in the middle section of the book, we deal with a lot of the kind of conspiracy theories that have been out there, conspiracy movements, QAnon, Pizzagate, um, birtherism, and and the election stuff. And I think, you know, in the election chapter, I just go through what the facts are regarding what happened. And the facts don't support the idea that there was, you know, this election was stolen. And, And so I think we have to be out there saying it. We can't be afraid to say it. Um, it's never pleasant to lose. And I know it was very unpre- unpleasant for this president in particular to lose. Um, but the facts are the facts. And I think, you know, I saw a poll this morning, you know, <coughs> excuse me, guy, which gave me some encouragement. In Iowa, a Des Moines Register poll of Iowa Republicans, and as you know, Iowa Republicans are some of the most conservative Republicans in America. Uh, they asked, are, is your loyalty primarily to the Republican Party or to Donald Trump? And the results were 62% said the Republican Party, 26% said Donald Trump. 
Now, that's a big change over where we were before, um, especially in Iowa, a place that he won both times fairly handily in the general election. And so I do think there's a pivot going on here. And I think that people need to remember, we're not yet 10 months from Donald Trump leaving office. So we expect in this instant gratification society for things to happen immediately. They don't. And people are going to absorb this over a period of time. They'll get less emotional about it. And as they do, I think they'll see the truth. And the truth will help to move us, catapult us forward to doing what we should be doing, which is not attacking other Republicans like Donald Trump is doing now, but to go after the really wrong-headed and dangerous policies that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are trying to inflict on this country. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the thing. I rarely talk about the past and the 2020 election or the former president on this show because there's so much in front of us on our plate to try to fight with what's happening with Democrat control of Washington, D.C. It's an absolute disaster on almost every front. That's what we focus on here. But even if you're right, let's just say – Things keep shifting and it ends up nationally being among the Republican base. Sixty some odd percent are more interested in the well-being of the party. And then you've got, let's say, a quarter to a third of base voters who are more loyal to President Trump. The point is, from my perspective, Republicans need every single one of those people and then some to show up and vote in order to win. They can't just sort of write off Trump's base, he is still enormously popular within the Republican electorate. He may not be as popular among the swing voters needed to win in places like Virginia, for example, or some of these other swing districts or battleground states in 2024. But if you're going to alienate sort of the MAGA base, Republicans are going to lose. So it's got to be this, you know, multiplication and addition project as opposed to subtraction and division. That's the old cliche. It is especially true right now. I'm just not sure how that balance is struck when you have, for example, if Trump is deciding that he wants to run again in 2024, he will be very, very prone to playing up, you know, his legacy and personal loyalty and his record and making sure that some of that transition that you were talking about, the pivot, so to speak, pivots back in his direction. That poses a challenge, certainly, for what you're arguing in the book. And I'm not sure what the solution would look like. Well, look, we can't. We can't accommodate that if it means um, not uh, being loyal to the truth. And the thing for our party that's much more important than anything in terms of loyalty is loyalty to the truth. You know, we saw, and I write about this in the book, we saw Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley do this when the John Birch Society was trying to take over the Republican Party in the aftermath of the Kennedy election in 1960. And... You know, Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley stood up to people who were engaged in truth-denying and conspiracy theories at the time, even though they were a sizable part of the Republican base at the time. And what was the result of that? Over, you know, starting with the 1968 election, um, all the way through um, the elections of, of George Bush 41, you saw a tidal wave of Republican victories in uh, the White House, uh, and ultimately the bringing back of a, a Republican House of Representatives. So I think we have to be the party of truth again. We have to follow the example of Reagan and Buckley, who took risk but stood up for those truths. And that's what I'm doing in this book, is to stand up for the truth and to say, look, for everybody who says they're a supporter of Donald Trump, the line forms behind me. I was the guy who came out there in February of 2016 and endorsed Donald Trump. I remember. No one else was doing it. And people, some people thought I was crazy. 
but I could see he was going to win our nomination, and I wanted to make him a better candidate and a better president. It does not give us permission to abandon the truth. What do you make of some of his comments about you? Because you're saying, well, we don't want to be attacking other Republicans, but now there's this back and forth through statements and what have you. And I think that would probably intensify here because you've got the book coming out. You've got this special on CNN. You're raising your profile. I know you've talked about at least considering whether you might want to throw your hat again into the ring for 2024. Uh, He doesn't seem to be a fan of that. How does that go down then? You know, if you're then in a war of words with the most prominent and still most popular within the party politician within the Republican Party. I'm not going to get into a war of words with them. And I didn't last week. You know, the president personally attacked me and mischaracterized the truth, both about my time in New Jersey and even about my reception at the Republican Jewish Coalition, which was actually quite enthusiastic and warm. Um, But I said, I'm not going to get into a back and forth with Donald Trump. And I'm not. But what I pointed out was that in 2013, when I ran for re-election, running on my record, I got 60% of the vote in a blue state. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden. So let's not get into that kind of game because it's not productive for anybody. And I simply don't intend to get in the back and forth with the president. If he wants to intensify his attacks on me, um, then people will judge Donald Trump based upon those attacks. But I'm not going to respond in kind. I'm just not. Even though, as you know, I'm quite capable of doing it. Um, uh, yep, but I mean, I'm not going to do we, that. We've seen that. Yeah. Uh, Governor Christie, I want to ask you one more political question and then a personal one as well. We will get to those right after this short break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, joined by Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. His new book is Republican Rescue. And, Governor, I said I had another question for you on the political side of things. We have not talked about this off the air or anything like that. I had just heard a rumor that your better half was at least being encouraged by some to maybe think about a political future in her own right, maybe for Congress in New Jersey. Is that anything that you can discuss with us? Is that just a a totally made-up rumor? Because you know I'm a huge fan of your wife. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. I'm going to ask Governor Christie about this as soon as I can. Look, it it is true that there have been um, very recently people within the party in New Jersey who have approached Mary Pat about the idea of running for the House of Representatives. Um, But she's nowhere near making any kind of decision about that. Um, but he's obviously flattered to have people approach her. And she cares a lot about the country, always has. Um, but, you know, we just sent our final child off to college. Our youngest daughter, Bridget, just started at, at the University of Notre Dame. And so we're just experiencing, you know, the empty nest um, uh, situation. And right. so I think both of us are going to be evaluating, now what do we want to do? with this new free time that we have, um, and how do we want to spend it most productively. But uh, listen, um, she's never told me that she wants to do that, Um, and so I won't believe it until she tells me. But I also can't deny what you heard, uh, which is that some have approached her, and that is true. Interesting. And, I mean, she's a badass, so and she's feisty. If she decides to get in, I mean, pop the popcorn and buckle up, because that could be – Honestly, a lot of fun, especially if you look at some of those districts. We talked about that 
few weeks ago on the air about how some New Jersey Democrats could be very vulnerable coming next fall. Last question, not political at all, Governor Christie, as we are approaching Thanksgiving, which is my favorite holiday. Are there any specific Christie family traditions that are particularly unusual or particularly meaningful to you around Thanksgiving? Well, no, there aren't any ones that I would call unusual to the American experience. You know, we'll have turkey and stuffing and uh, sweet potatoes and all the things that people normally have. I will be in charge of making the mashed potatoes and and the turkey. Those are my two responsibilities. That's very and big responsibilities. They are, but, you know, it's, it's the two things I can do. Mary Pat takes care of everything else, and we'll be hosting Thanksgiving at our house this year for the first time um, since 2019. Um, so we're, we're really excited that we'll have our family there and with us, and I'll be making the mashed potatoes and taking care of the turkey. And when you call my wife a badass, you're exactly right. Remember this. <laughs> People should remember this about her. She went and worked on the junk bond desk at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette as a woman in 1986 and had a 30-year career on Wall Street. And very few women in 1986 were working in the Michael Milken-created junk bond business. And so if she can survive um, having done that, politics will, I think, look like light work for her. <laughs> She's not to be trifled with. Well, have a great Thanksgiving to you and the whole family, Governor. It's Chris Christie here on the show. The new book out tomorrow, Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Again, that is available starting tomorrow. Governor Christie, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. It's the Guy Benson Show, and the happy hour continues right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier on the program today, we caught up with Douglas Holtz-Aiken, who's the president of American Action Forum. He's the former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Why is that important? Well, there's a huge multi-trillion dollar boondoggle that the Democrats are going to try, we think, to pass in the coming weeks, at least in the House. What does the CBO have to say about that? What does the significance of a CBO score, so to speak, how does that play into this wider debate? Douglas is the perfect guy to ask about all of this. So we had him on earlier, and here's part of that conversation with Douglas Holtz-Aiken. The reason I wanted to have you on is because the CBO is going to be in focus in the coming days. I saw a tweet that CBO put out that they believe that by the end of this week, They will have a score, so to speak, on this uh, non, I should say, purely partisan uh, Democratic spending bill, the reconciliation bill, build back better, human infrastructure, uh, whatever you want to call it. Some House moderates or more moderate members of the Democratic caucus had said that they weren't willing to vote on any package until the CBO had a full score. Then there were reports that some of them would be fine Maybe not with a complete final score, but at least more information from the Congressional Budget Office. If you could just share some insight into what this process looks like and to your knowledge, is it rare or has it ever happened before? If there's a multi-trillion dollar piece of legislation that doesn't have a final CBO score for that bill to get a vote in the absence of the score, that seems pretty wild to me. But I don't know if there's precedent there. 
there certainly is precedent. So on, on the books, um, Congress should have a score of any piece of legislation prior to taking a vote, but uh, rules like that are easily waived, and they've been waived many, many times in the past, uh, even for very large uh, pieces of, of legislation. So the uh, many people thought that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act should have a full dynamic score, look at the impact on the economy, feedbacks on growth and, and revenues. Uh, that did not come out until two weeks after it was law. And so, you know, there, there's lots of precedent for even very large and important piece of legislation to move ahead without a score. I'm pleased to see that they are, in fact, waiting for a score. This is a uh, this is something where we have been reliant on administration and treasury scoring of the things that they say are in there. And there are really two issues with that. Issue number one is that the CBO exists because Congress decided they could not rely on the administration having the, the only budget estimates. And they wanted to have their own uh, institution to do that kind of hard work. That's why the CBO is there. And so I don't think they should trust the administration's estimates. They should get their guys to look at the bill. The second is... The CBO scores what's written down. It doesn't score what they'd like to do, what they hope to do, or even what they say they do. They score what's written down. And you'd be stunned at the number of times there's a mismatch between what's actually in the legislative text and the way people have been talking about it. Often that changes the, the dollars involved enormously. So certainly in this instance, I think uh, we've had scores on what the administration says they think it should do. We should get scores from the CBO on what it actually does. And that's what they're up to right now. So I think that's all very interesting, and I think that's really important color as we look at what's upcoming here. And I think that the first of the two points that you made is crucial because, of course, an administration, and in this case it's the Biden administration, but any White House would love to say, hey, we've got this big project that we've got planned and we are going to put this proposal. We'd like it to become law. Please vote on it. Here are all the wonderful uh, wonderful things it's going to do. Uh, these bad things that you may have heard about, uh, it's not going to do those things. And it's going to cost exactly what we say it's going to cost and sort of set up their own success using numbers that they have determined themselves. But it's within their interest to perhaps twist those numbers a bit or to shade things in a positive light or the most positive light possible in order to achieve a political end. That is not the CBO's job, right? CBO is nonpartisan, independent to actually do the math. So people don't have to rely on the say-so of any administration that, you know, by definition is trying to get their own agenda through, right? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Part of the criticism that I've heard over the years of CBO is that, yes, they analyze the numbers that are in front of them, but the numbers that are put in front of them sometimes are themselves already manipulated in order to get the CBO to say something that is desired, even if it's sort of a distortion of the true cost of a piece of legislation. And that is not unique to Democrats or to Republicans. It's sort of some of the gamesmanship that happens on Capitol Hill. Can you talk to us about sort of the gimmicks here? What should we be on the lookout for when the CBO presents their score of this bill? What do politicians sometimes attempt to make sure that their political ends and the CBO official numbers are in alignment, even if with more context in a wider lens, it's really not that simple at all. My full interview with the former CBO director, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, available at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast. Every day on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, the home stretch, a fun weekend, a busy weekend for me, plus a look ahead 
to going back to Florida tomorrow for the Patriot Awards. That's all next on The Home Stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. Thank you for listening to the Guy Benson Show every day. We really do appreciate it. In fact, more on that in just a moment. But first, we'll be doing the show from Florida the next two afternoons, Tuesday and Wednesday, leading up to the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation, which is 8 p.m. Eastern time, Wednesday evening. And it will air as an encore presentation on Fox News Channel the following Sunday, November 21st. That's at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, the replay on Fox News Channel if you can't stream it live on Fox Nation Wednesday night. Pete Hegseth from Fox & Friends Weekend will be emceeing the event. We've got him on the show. We've got Tucker likely on the show later this week. We've got quite a lineup. From South Florida. I was just in South Florida over the weekend, totally unrelated, and I will head there tomorrow morning, broadcasting live from Hollywood, Florida. And heading down there even sooner. In fact, tonight, as the show wraps up, producer Christine is headed off to the airport to go and get the lay of the land. And I think as soon as she touches down in the Sunshine State of Florida tonight, I would not be surprised if Governor DeSantis immediately declares a state of emergency because Cookie has arrived again. And we know that she left quite a lot of destruction in her wake when she was just down in Miami. And so they're on high alert for Cookie's arrival in Florida later this evening. In all seriousness, though, Christine, just listening to you on the phone the last few days talking about this, you seem extremely excited to be traveling down there for the Patriot Awards. I am so, so excited because, well, one, I don't get to travel often, so that's always a nice little perk treat. But two, this is such an amazing event, and I'm so excited that we, our show, is a part of it. And to be broadcasting, we're going to have so many people on the show. Don't forget Joey Jones we're going to have in person. Yep. Tucker Carlson, Will Kane, it's and people that you don't even know yet, guy, because I haven't even booked them yet because I'm going to do that on the fly after I track them down. And oh yeah, you're going to be stalking people. Yeah, in in <laughs> real time, in person, all over the place. And the other thing, though, here's my concern about what we've got going on over the next couple shows. And by the way, once the doors open to the venue on Wednesday, my understanding is doors open at 5 p.m. So people can come check out the last hour of the show. So they can come over and say hello and watch the show as it goes down live in person. I'll be lingering a bit after the show to say hi to some folks. That should be a lot of fun. So if you're a Fox Nation subscriber, you're attending these awards, come say hello on Wednesday evening. What I'm worried about, though, Christine, is on these planning calls, It sounds like you are spreading yourself quite thin already. You're just offering to be everyone's producer. You're going to do this. You're going to go seeking out people for that. You're going to act as this podcast producer. I'm wondering if you're actually going to be producing this show or if you're just going to be producing every show. I'm going to try to work on your show a little bit. Um, But, you know, (laughs) you can have patience. No, I'm worried that I did overextend myself because uh, as I'm trying to book people for your show, some of these talents, don't really have a schedule or a plan or a producer. And I have offered my services 
Um, yeah, I'm going to have to talk to, about, to yeah, the boss. To a lot I of people. Like you're just, you're right. volunteering yeah. yourself left and right. Yes. And so my yes, worry am. is we're going to be, you know, doing the show live and your phone's going to be blowing up from a, an array <laughs> of Fox News stars. And you're going to have to be going to excuse yourself to go put out some fire or go get this person there. And we'll just be rudderless on the program without producer Christine. Don't worry. And then don't forget, I'm going to have to take time out for my fans. I like to call them the cookie cutters. I just just decided that today, actually. You just made that so, up in the moment. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's actually really good. Don't you? Um, I'm not sure. I think maybe you could work on that a little bit further. Because what does that mean exactly? Cookie cutter generally means just like basic and the same. Do you want to cast your fan base as just kind of a bunch of uh, non-unique automaton robots. I I wonder if they would appreciate that. Aren't they all unique and special in their own way? Yeah, I just have to find them first. Um, I haven't. How about about the cookie cookie monsters? How about the cookie monsters, but in a loving way? We could. We could. If anybody wants to volunteer to be a a cookie monster, um, just let me know. Uh, and you cannot, you cannot run the club, obviously, because we've seen how you've been a class mom for your own daughter, just dropping uh, balls left and right. So the, the Cookie Monsters Club would uh, fail to launch, I would say. It would just you fall apart on the launch pad uh, if you're in charge of it. Although I will say this, this past weekend, as I referenced, I was down in West Palm Beach and then Palm Beach, Florida, at the Breakers, which is a beautiful place, and I was uh, giving a speech on Saturday morning, and I had a few other events to go to, but I had some free time as well. So I went down to the pool on Saturday for a couple hours, because why not? And I was kind of relaxing, and a few different times when I was walking over to the bar or the restroom or whatever, Fox fans would recognize me and come say hello. It was really cool, very nice people. This happened a number of times, and these are not people who were there for a politically themed conference. These were other people who just happened to be at the breakers who happened to be there, recognized me. So that's cool. It's always just so fulfilling to meet people who watch faithfully and who are fans of Fox news. And it's just, it, it really is gratifying and everyone's always very apologetic and Oh, sorry, sorry to bother you. It's not a bother. It really isn't. Without our audience, there would be no Fox News. There would be no Guy Benson show. I am just incredibly appreciative of people who watch and people who listen. So it is my pleasure to hang out and say hello and answer some questions, take a few photos. I love that stuff. But one was especially memorable because I was walking, I think, back from the bar over to my little perch over by the pool. And there was a young woman, maybe roughly my age who literally stopped in her tracks, like froze in her tracks when she saw me. And she just approached me. She said, are you Guy? And I said, yes. And not only is she a Fox fan, which is awesome, she told me I literally was just listening to Friday's show on the podcast, on the flight down here. She's from upstate New York. She's a doctor. She and her husband were just on vacation. And she is a daily listener to the Guy Benson show and was so excited just to bump into me. And it was awesome to meet her. I know that she's probably listening. So hello to you and your husband. Thank you so much for saying hi. And she did, in fact, inquire about the whereabouts of producer Cookie Christine. And so I wonder maybe this doctor could be the founding member of the Cookie Monsters fan club. 
I kid you not. She did ask. Huh. See, they so they 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 want me. They're asking for me. They need me out there. Who's that? I get it. The fans, the monsters. They're all out there. They're just begging. Pleading. Your public you. your public awaits. I'm actually now developing a new source of concern about the Patriot Awards. What if you are not only now overcommitted to other people producing various things because in your zeal you've offered to do far too much. You've bitten off more than you can chew. So that's detracting from our ability to do the show. And then on top of that, what happens if you are just overwhelmed by a crush of let's call them cookie monsters when they arrive at the location, right? So like Tucker Carlson will be walking through, and I'm sure he's popular with a lot of the viewers, so he's you know number one and all that. But then in walks Christine. I can just imagine the crowd. Someone screams, she's here, and everyone just, Tucker all of a sudden has no one. And they've all rushed to Christine, and all of a sudden you're body surfing. They're passing you around through this huge throng. Should I be worried about this, Christine? I mean, you can be. I actually am thinking maybe I got to fly Wyatt down. Quiet Wyatt. He, we might. Oh, to be your bodyguard. He could be your bodyguard. <laughs> the muscle to keep people away, keep your public away from you if they get a little fresh. Yeah, but then I bet you he's got quiet fans too. They're not probably as crazy as my monsters. Right. You know, they would clap very quietly for a- him as he walked by. <laughs> And the way, by the way, that he would menace people if, if they were doing too much or, like, getting up in your face too much, he'd be like, don't make me roll up my copy of the Wall Street Journal. And they could use that to sort of poke and, even if necessary, prod. That's the, uh, the high-octane security situation we'd have with this crew. In other words, in other words it's like just open season. You, you didn't realize all this when you started the Guy Benson show, did you? You didn't realize the impact this show was going to have on many, many people. Yeah, I, I did not realize a lot of things when we launched this show, and I got assigned this uh, this longtime producer named Christine. Last thing, Christine, by the way, have you seen photos of this hotel where the where the venue is, where this is all taking place? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's shaped like a giant guitar. That, that is the so shape cool. of the building. And it also has this elaborate series and, like, network of pools, a huge amount of pool space, pool side space. I know that you like your fruity cocktails in warm weather at a pool. If you are suddenly MIA, should we dispatch people to look maybe out by the pool where you're catching some sun and just totally falling down on the job and you know, having a few daiquiris and shirking your radio duties. Is that something that we need to think about? Is that a contingency plan to develop? So, you know, I thought about packing a bathing suit and just sneaking out for that moment, but I think I did myself a disservice by volunteering to help so many people. I don't even think I'll see the sun outside. I'm not sure I'll be able to step outside for all the volunteering I have done. For well, and in shows. fairness, in fairness... The sun is the sun, but your star will shine so brightly. Who needs the sun? The real light will be inside the hard rock with producer Christine and the whole crew. There's a massive Fox contingent heading south for the Patriot Awards, which is Wednesday, this Wednesday, November 17th. Live audience in attendance, live streaming 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox Nation. You should sign up, foxnation.com. Encore 
on Sunday night, Fox News Channel, 10 p.m., and we will have a number of the stars that cavalcade of Fox News stars on the Guy Benson Show as we broadcast from South Florida. Looking forward to that. Safe travels tonight, Christine. Same to you. And the Guy Benson Show will hit you from South Florida tomorrow. Same time, same place, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.